Gospel of Matthew. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw, him, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where, in the, where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this, was the prophet, this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my, is, my people Israel. Then carried then Herod called the wise men secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so to, that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. You may be seated. Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Hey, how many of you guys participated in uh, Santa's workshop yesterday? What a joy was that. Holy smokes, man. We had about 700 kids from our community come through, about 1,200 people, and it was just a massive joy. Can we just say thank you to all those who put it on? Now, things like this matter to us because we are a church that says we are not against our city. We are for our city. And the church has a call to show radical hospitality to outsiders. And so when we put on things like that, create space, make room, it, it, in so many ways, it's like the Christmas story saying, listen, in response to Jesus, we are going to be a people who make room for outsiders because there was no room for Jesus in the end. But Jesus is making a new way. Amen. And so th this is why stuff like this uh, matters. Uh, as we dive in today, um, I want to start with this concept of because I grew up in the, I was born in the 80s, grew up in the 90s, as a teenager in the 2000s, back when um, movies were actually good, um, when they actually made more than just, um, you know, uh, remade movies. And my favorite type of movies were movies with a twist, right? Uh, something at the end that just changes everything. Movies like The Prestige by Christopher Nolan, which was so good, or Martin Scorsese's Shutter Island. But the ultimate twist movie, everybody knows, is Sixth Sense, okay? Because you watch that movie, and, and, and I'm sorry I'm gonna spoil it, but it's 20 years old, okay? You're not gonna go home and watch, you're like, I was gonna watch that, it's Christmas. No, it's not, right, okay? I was gonna stop at Blockbuster. No, you weren't, okay? It's not, you know, it's not gonna happen. But uh, the premise of the movie is this kid sees dead people, and you find out the main character is dead the whole time at, at the very end, and it just changes, changes the way you see the whole movie. And it's hilarious because even Nate Bargatze, comedian, pointed out recently, he's like, yeah, we watched that movie, and the whole time, Bruce Willis's wife is not talking to him, and we found, it hard, we found that easier to believe that she was just giving him the silent treatment for a year than the whole premise of the movie, and we, we miss these things. But the greatest twist is not necessarily something you didn't see coming, but something that you should have seen coming, 
right? So there's just these little, these little glimpses along the way of like, they're, t- they're trying to point what's happening. They're trying to tell the story. No, 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 this is, it's not about the twist. It's about what leads up to it. Oh, I should have seen that. So, so often you watch a movie, there's a twist at the end, and then you rewatch it, and you see it through a whole different lens, do you not? See, here's, that's what I want you to understand about the Old Testament story, is the story of Jesus coming to earth, it's not a twist in the plot. It's not like, oh, this is incredible that this happened. The whole Old Testament is leading up to Christmas. It's pointing forward to this day. So here's what I wanna do as we look at this idea of bowing down in worship and how Christ's glory and his worthiness, I wanna take a little journey through the Old Testament and see this concept as it comes up. Now, before we do that, I need you to understand something, that no one has seen God. Okay, and I say that um, just because the Bible says it. Okay, so don't ar- ar- please don't argue with me on that. John one says no one has ever seen God, and in fact, in Exodus, second book of the Bible, God says to Moses, "You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live." Okay, so we have this context to the overall scripture. No one's seen God, yet you read the Old Testament, and there's story after story about God appearing to people. How can that be? Well. What, we're, what theologians would call that is they would call it a theophany or a Christophany. It's just simple two words put together. Theo being the Greek word for God and ophany a reference to the Greek adjective um, of appearance and so, um, or Christ appearance. So it just means God appearance or Christ appearance. So there's these Old Testament theophanies and Christophanies. And I, I wanna show them to you. Um, because they're there on like the opening pages in the Garden of Eden. We see that Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden with them. Abraham, we're told that the Lord appeared to Abram and spoke to him. That's Genesis 12, 17, 18. In Genesis chapter 32, there's a man named Jacob and he's wrestling with this unknown figure at night and he wrestles all through the night and he has this, this wound in his hip when he's done and he gets done and he says things like, I have seen God face to face. Afterwards, he realizes, I was wrestling with God. Now, this is a tension, right? It says no one's seen God. And yet we're not even through the first book of the Bible and there's all these theophanies. There's all these appearances of God where people have interactions with God. Genesis 16, Hagar, the slave of Sarah, Abraham's wife, she's impregnated by Abraham and she's running away from them and the angel of the Lord appears. It says the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road of Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count, numerous to count. And then she gives this, then she's given this very specific prophecy about the child that she is gonna give birth to. So much so, she gets done with this, and this is how she responds. This is what she says at at, at the end. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me. The name she gives him is El Roi, 
For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. So sometimes you initially read a story like this and you're like, okay, so an angel showed up. But clearly what the scripture is telling us is this is not just an angel, this is God himself showing up to Hagar. Exodus 24, we read that Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 72 of the elders of Israel went up Mount Sinai and they saw the Lord, saw the God of Israel. Exodus 33 even says that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. And then you actually have these more frequent appearances of clouds and smoke and fire. And these two are actually theophanies, right? What's the most well-known, one of the most well-known of fire? It's Moses in the burning bush. And, and what does the burning bush say? It speaks to him and it says, take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy ground. And then God actually reveals who he is. It's not just some sign or wonder that it's actually God speaking and interacting with Moses. It says the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then he reveals his name, Yahweh. He says, I am. That's who sent you. That's who's sending you. That's God in that moment. But also, not just that, in Exodus 13, we're told that the Lord went before the people of Israel by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. Again, this is not just, oh, he sent a cloud, and oh, he sent fire. It says, the Lord was with them. Now, how is this possible, okay? How is it that God would who is described in the New Testament as the invisible God. This is what Paul says. He says he's the invisible God. How can he appear to Abraham and to Moses and to speak face to face as a friend and be fi- or physically wrestle with Jacob when it also tells us that no one has seen God? And God tells Moses, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. How is this possible? And, and, and the deeper question again, because we're um, in the season of Advent, what the heck does this do to, with Christmas, right? You guys like show up, you're like, oh, I love Christmas messages. And like, really, bro? Like, we're, we're going Old Testament? You know he shows up in the new one, right? I, I understand, okay? It's kind of like, um, it's amazing the debate around this time about Christmas movies. What is a Christmas movie and what is not, right? You know, because there's ones we all agree on, right? Elf, Elf is a Christmas movie. Is it not? I mean, it's an instant classic as soon as it came out. Christmas movie. Um, you know, Christmas Vacation. Any Christmas Vacation fans? Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, Nine was not ready for Christmas Vacation. You guys are more sophisticated humor. I appreciate that, right? <laughs> Christmas Story, you know? All right? That one's not very good. <laughs> it's nostalgic. And what that means is you have a misconstrued perception of how good it was, and you watch it again in your adult, and you're like, this is not... Really? Like, why did I? But there is, a, there is like a champion of Christmas movies. It's Home Alone. Right? Yeah. I, I feel like that was an underwhelming. It was Home, Home Alone is the greatest Christmas movie of all time, is it not? Yeah, okay. Yeah, you guys are not convinced. All right. But it's funny, right? When you watch it as an adult, you have a different perspective, do you not? Right? You think so different. Like, I watch it, and I'm always like, what did Kevin McAllister's dad do for work? Because that house is huge. You know what I'm saying? 
and all that family, he paid for them to all go to Paris for like a week over Christmas. You ever try to buy flights over Christmas season? It's so expensive. And how in the world is all that pizza only 122.50 plus tip? You know what I'm saying? Like, man, it's just like I miss the 90s. Like, it was glorious, right? But then there's these debated like, oh, is this a Christmas movie or not? You know, people say like, oh, you've got mail. Like it has a Christmas scene and it's so it's a Christmas movie or uh, the argument now is Harry Potter, right? Harry Potter's a Christmas movie. I'm like, it, Harry Potter just takes over the place over a school year and they have Christmas break. See, they say Christmas, right? Doesn't make it a Christmas movie. And then there's the ultimate debated one and I, I, we just have to settle it right now. I'm sorry, listen, nobody actually thinks Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Nobody does. No, they don't. no, you don't. No, no, you don't. You don't. No, either you have a tradition of it or, but here's really what, he, we're gonna have like a church split over this. I'm feeling the tension in the room, okay? I, I promise we'll get back to Jesus in a second, but let me just, I have the mic. So uh, here's the thing. Here's the thing, all right? Um, it's not that anybody actually thinks it's a Christmas movie. They're just tired of watching Miracle on 34th Street every year. And they're like, I just need some action, okay? So just give me something with explosions and guns. Like, that's why we bring it back. And, and people, they've taken this far. They're, I've literally, I saw somebody, you know, a blog this week. I was reading, okay, best Christmas movies, you know, because I wanted to watch them. And they said Gremlins. Yeah, because they were Furbies were Christmas gifts. I'm like, I'm like, I'm still traumatized, right? You know, if somebody handed me a Furby, a Furby to me right now, I'd, I'd punt it across the room. I'm like, no, I, I, mess, I have childhood trauma for that, okay? I, 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 there's a point here, I, I, I promise, okay? Here's the thing. What makes a Christmas movie is that it centers around the Christmas season. Not that it happens to have it in it. It centers around that. And here's my argument, and here's the point. The first not 39 books of your scripture, the Old Testament, it's a Christmas story. You know why? Because it's leading to one event, the arrival, the advent of Jesus. And the only way to read the Bible, the Old Testament, this is a Christmas story. You're waiting for the arrival of Jesus. And he shows up in the Gospels. And guess what the rest of the scripture is? An Easter book. Looking forward to the resurrection, building on the resurrection of Jesus. This is, it points to this. So how is it possible that we can have it say that God is invisible, yet there's all these appearances. Let me tell you how it's possible. The New Testament tells us how. And it says specifically in Colossians 1, Paul says, Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. That's how it's possible. Jesus is the one who makes the invisible God visible. This is the point of, of him showing up of advent, of arrival, is that God wants to be with us. God wants relationship, and how does he have relationship? How does he connect? It's through Jesus. And the apostle Paul, he goes on to teach about these Old Testament theophanies, these movements, this, this guiding, this leading through, this, and he constantly says, no, that was Jesus. Jesus is the rock that provides. Jesus is the one who guides. In June, in Jude 155, it says, uh, I want to remind you, he, he says, sorry, June 1-5, I want to remind you that it was Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. You, he's like, no, you thought it was Moses that led the people out of Egypt, that set them free? No, 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 it was Jesus. Jesus is the pillar of fire. Jesus is the cloud. Jesus is the one that is guiding and leading. This is how 
we read the Bible and how we have to understand the Bible, all of the Old Testament, it is a Christmas story pointing us to the arrival, the advent, the longing of the Messiah. Jesus is the one we are looking for. And what does this reveal to us? What what do we get out of this? Well, first, that we have a God who is with his people. He's not a distant, far off God. God wants to be with you. God wants to be present in your pain. God wants to be present in your life. It's not some, oh, there's some far off deity that wants no relationship with us. No, no, he wants to be visible and how do we know that? He showed up as a baby. He took on flesh and blood and he moved into the neighborhood. He makes his dwelling among us, his tabernacle. And how did he do that? By taking on our form, by becoming a human and walking among us. Theophanies, they show that the heart of God is to be physically, invisibly, inseparably present from his people. That's what God is like. And how do we know that? We know that because of Jesus. You know, one of the interesting discussions and debates of our day is people will say these really foolish things like all religions are the same. And it's also ironic to me how often um, People of other religions outside of Christianity always try to associate that. No, we're the same. We worship the same God. And that is absolutely not true. And and, and let me explain this to you. Um, There was a group of uh, pastors and religious leaders that were gathered in another country. And a pastor was sharing this story. And they were all saying that. They're like, no, we worship the same God. We worship, we just are different expressions of that. And he says, so what you're saying, he pointed to this mountain off in the distance. He's like, you see that mountain up there? I'm like, yeah. He's like, what you're saying is, it's like God is at the top of that mountain. And all our religions are just different ways to climb up that mountain, just different paths to get to God. And they're like, exactly, you get it. That's the only difference of religion. He's like, no. See, this is where the Bible is different. What the Bible tells us is, yeah, God's up at that mountain, but there's no way for us to get up that mountain ourselves. So we have a God who through Jesus Christ came down the mountain to us. And that is the only way to God. He wants to be with you. How do we know God wants relationship with you? He showed up in our neighborhood. He took on our flesh and blood in our form. The great theologian manifests himself as a rock star, Bono, put it like this. The idea that there's a force of love and logic behind the universe is overwhelming to start with, if you believe it, okay? He's saying, listen, God is love, right? He's this community, triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune, perfect God. God is love, and he uses the word logic, which is a way of saying an intelligent, creative designer. He says, it can be challenging to start with that, if you believe it. It can be overwhelming, but the idea that that same love and logic would choose to come himself as a baby born in straw and poverty is genius, and it brings me to my knees, literally. To me, as a poet, I am just in awe of that. It makes some sort of poetic sense. It's the thing that makes me a believer, though it didn't dawn on me for many years. It's the advent It's the arrival that shows that God truly is love, that God truly is 
the creator, and that he wants to be with us. But here's the thing. Not only do we have a God who wants to be with us, we have to understand that Jesus is how we encounter God. Why does Paul explicitly, the New Testament writers, the apostles explicitly say, okay, no one has seen God, yet there's all these Old Testament appearances, these encounters with the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord. As these New Testament writers are explaining, these are pre-incarnate appearances of Christ that Jesus was showing up from the very beginning, that Jesus was walking in the garden, that Jesus was in the burning bush, that Jesus was in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that Jesus shows up to Abraham, that Jesus shows up to Isaac, that Jesus wrestles with Jacob. It's Christ. Jesus is how we encounter God. That's the whole point of these Christophanies. Jesus is how we encounter God face to face. It's how the invisible God can be made visible. That's the whole point of the incarnation. It's God coming to us that we might be able to have an encounter with him. You know, when I was uh, about 15 years old and I was in high school, my youth group, we took a trip down to Brazil. And we went and visited one of the days, we went and visited one of the most famous cities in Brazil, Rio de Janeiro. And overlooking that entire city is just one of the most incredible statues. It's called the Christ Redeemer statue. It's about 2,000 feet above the city. And, it, and this thing is massive, okay? It's 125 feet high. Christ's arms are about 92 feet in spans, just solid concrete. And what's interesting is when you, so you take this bus about halfway up and then you hike the rest of the way. And if you really, I know it's hard to see, but even at the, you know, the very base of it, um, there's this, you kind of see this little standing pillars. It just gives concept and perspective of how giant this is. And so you're standing at the base of this statue, and just the base that it's on is 26 feet high, okay? For context, all right, this stage is 21 inches high, okay? About six pickles, right? Uh, the bottom of that beam is 14 to 16 feet. The ceiling in here is about 20 to 22 feet, okay? Kind of depending on where it's at um, in the building. The platform that Christ the Redeemer statue is on is 26 feet high. So you go up there, you're like, oh, I get to go see this statue up close. This, you can see it off thousands of feet away, but you get close and you get there and you're standing there and you know what that experience is like? You're like, that's a lot of concrete. you can't even take it in. It's actually too massive for you to even comprehend. You're like, it, okay, I see there's, there's flowing, and I know on the other side of this platform there's feet, and I can, kinda, I can see that there's arms out there. You, I can barely see his face. You can, it's like too massive for you to actually take in. The only way to get a good view of it is like a picture like this from a helicopter or a drone or thousands of feet away with a telescope that brings it smaller for your mind to comprehend. Now, third century theologian Origen, he talked about Jesus like this. He said, God is way too massive for us to comprehend. 
way too big for us to understand. And he said that Jesus is the self-miniaturization of God, the giant becoming small, the infinite becoming contained in the finite because only in God becoming small can our small minds actually comprehend him. How incredible is that? All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in human form like you and I so that we could understand relationship, so we could understand his glory and his goodness and his power. And so let me just challenge you. Would you seek the presence of God by seeking out King Jesus? This is what the wise men did. This is what our story is. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men or magi from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. See, here's the beauty of the Christmas story is it invites us that wise men still seek him. The wisest thing you can do with your life is to continue to seek after the presence of Jesus. So how, how do we do this? Because it gets crazy and it gets busy. Let me, let me just encourage you in a couple ways. First, gather in his house. Gather with his people for worship. It, this season is going to get busier and busier for you. Can I just implore you right now? Make time to gather with the people of Jesus in the presence of Christ. Gather for, I, again, I'm literally like preaching to the little choir right now, okay? You're like, I'm here, dude, relax. I'm affirming your decision. You had a busy weekend. You had things going on. Can I just tell you that Jesus is better? A few weeks ago, I just had that, you know those crazy, crazy weeks? Everything was happening, everything was coming ahead. I was running out of time. I just had these, these things I was finishing up. And my wife called me, and I was working late, and she called me, she's like, hey, just a, a, a reminder, um, we got that worship night tonight. And, and, and me, uh, your lead pastor, I forgot about the worship night at our church. Um, <clears throat> and my first thought was, I have too much going on right now. Now, I didn't say that out loud. That would be heretical. Um, I would never admit that. But I felt that. And uh, after a moment, I said, okay, I'll meet you guys at home. We'll go together. We'll figure this out. And we came in, and I literally showed up that night, like, with all the things on my mind. And then I walked in this room, and I grabbed a seat with my wife. And that night was exactly what I needed. I needed to be reminded um, that it is not my job to maintain the throne that Christ occupies. That I need to be a child and I need to worship. I needed to hear Jason Fellman share his testimony and story about God encountering him in a powerful way and being moved and rocked by it. I needed to lift up the name of Jesus. I needed to take communion with my body and be led through this reminder that Christ is what we need. 
This is why we have Advent, to remind ourselves we still need Jesus, and he is worthy. And so gather in his house. Second, open his word. Say, you know what? There's all the things happening, but you know what voice I need more than anything? I need the voice of Christ. He is the one who gets to name me. He is the one who gets to guide me. Open his word. And third, center your traditions around Jesus. It's so easy for us to have our Christmas traditions and lose Christ in the midst of it, is it not? And so can I just implore you, I, center the room around Christ. Everything you do, make it about Jesus. Remind yourselves how it's about Jesus. And I just, let me just challenge the husbands and fathers in the room. You have a responsibility to lead your family in this. Do not just sit back and be like, okay, yep, all the, oh, here's all the things. No, you lead your family to Christ. You remind them as they're opening gifts that Jesus is the, opening, the, the ultimate gift. Bring them to church. Lead them in that way. We are called to seek out King Jesus because here's what happens when we encounter Christ. See, encounters with Jesus lead us to fall down and worship. When we really encounter Christ, it's not about the busyness or all the things we're overwhelmed with. We're led into to fall down and worship. And the story I ultimately want to look at in the Old Testament is I want you to see how people responded when they encountered the, the pre-incarnate Christ, when they experienced these Christophanies. And one of my favorite is in Joshua chapter five. Joshua is leading the people of Israel in battle against Jericho. And I mean, he, like his blood is boiling, right? He, he's built up, he's fired up, he's in his armor, he's got his sword. And this, this is the context, Joshua 5.13. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, ready for battle, leading these men, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries, right? This man is standing before you, drawn sword in his hand, ready for battle, and he's leading, he's commanding his armies, and he's like, are you for us, or are you for our enemies? And, and this is Jesus, okay? And I want you to see how Jesus responds. This is what he says. And he said, no. No. Hey, are you going left or are you going right? No. Are you with me or are you with them? No. Are you for us or are you for our enemies. And Jesus just goes, no. And he says, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Oh, oh look at you in your little, your, your little outfit. That's cute, Joshua, right? You got that little, that little sword out of materials that I created out of nothing. And you stand here and you are the commander of the Lord's army. Guess what? I'm the commander of the Lord's army. And now I have come. Now watch how Joshua responds. In this, he's in his gear, he's ready for battle, he's ready to fight, he's ready for war. And it says, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is what happens when you have an encounter with Jesus. You fall down to your face in worship. 
you fall in awe of his glory and his goodness and his grace and his power. When Isaiah gets a glimpse of the throne room, the holiness of God, what does he say? He says, I am not worthy, I am a man of unclean lips. When Gideon encounters the pre-incarnate Christ, he doesn't understand how he's not even dead. How does he not die, right? When Balaam, right? We know Balaam's going on this journey. He's going against what God has for him. And so the angel of the Lord, what's the angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. It's Jesus shows up. And before Balaam sees him, Balaam's donkey sees him. And so Balaam's donkey starts trying to run away. And then Jesus shows up again. And Balaam doesn't see him. Donkey's like, I'm going this way, right? And so finally Jesus, like, you know, Balaam won't actually see. So for some reason, Jesus is like, all right, I'm gonna make this donkey talk, right? And this donkey's, you know, Balaam's beating this donkey. And this donkey's like, why are you hitting me, right? And he's like, because you're not obeying me. He's, he's not even weirded out. He's not like, my donkey's talking at me. He's like, obey me, donkey, right? <laughs> finally, finally, he see. I don't know why I'm telling this. This is not a Christmas story. I didn't plan. It's just here. Okay, finally, Balaam see, it says his eyes are opened and he sees the angel of the Lord. And what happens? He falls on his face and worships him. He's more terrified at the presence of of Jesus than he is that his donkey is talking to him, as he should be. When the evil king of Nebuchadnezzar throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire as their punishment, he's gonna burn them alive. And then all of a sudden he looks and he sees they're not being consumed. And he says to his men, we put three people in there, right? And they say, yes, we put in three. He says, why do I see a fourth who looks like the son of a God. What does he see? He gets a glimpse of Jesus. That's, that's what he sees. And this glimpse is so powerful that he pulls out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he changes their entire law as a society, saying this is the kind of God we need to worship. This is what happens when we encounter Christ. Now, all of this, all of these stories, all of this falling on the face, all of this, it is the buildup to actually understand what's happening here in Matthew 2. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and what happens? They bowed down and they worshiped him. Because this is what happens when we enter the presence of Christ. We are overwhelmed by his glory. We are overwhelmed by his majesty and his might. Then they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. When people encounter Jesus, they fall on their face in worship because he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of all God's glory manifest inside of a little child. He is all the fullness of God dwelling in the radiant glory of his radiant, glorious son. This is Jesus. This is why we worship him. And he's worthy of it. Charles Spurgeon puts it like this. He says, a stir begins as soon as Christ is born. He has not spoken a word. He has not wrought a miracle. He has not proclaimed a single doctrine. But when Jesus was born at the very first, while as yet you hear nothing but infant cries, you can see nothing but infant weakness. Still, his influence upon the world is manifest. What, when Jesus was born, there came wise men from the east and so on. There is infinite power even in an infant savior. This 
is why we worship Jesus. And so this Christmas, you guys, may we fall down. May we center all of our lives, all of who we are, and surrender to Christ. The Old Testament word for this is the word barak. We translate it as the word bless, but it's a word that means to kneel in a posture of recognition of his kingship, that we fall on our face, but you know what? Your eyes are actually lifted up because you're in awe of the glory. You're in awe of the power. This word, it shows up 289 times throughout the book of the Psalms. Over and over and over, we are called to bow down before Jesus, to recognize, to revere, to adore, to give thanks to him. This is Psalm 103, one of the best examples of this. Bless Barak, right? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. And then he starts to list out why we are to bow down before him. What are his attributes? Why we bow down? Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Why? Because, why do we bow down? Because he's the king of kings, you guys, and he's worthy. He's a king who heals. He's a king who forgives. He's a king who redeems. He's a king who crowns us with love and mercy. He's a king who satisfies. And then this psalm, it ends with who should bow down. It says, bless, bow down to the Lord, O you angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bow down to the Lord, all his hosts, all his ministers who do his will. Bow down to the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion, Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Who bows down? All bow down. All bow down. Because he is worthy. Because he is glorious. Because he is mighty. And for some reason, he took on our form and he dwelt among us that we might know God. That we might have relationship with him. You guys, he is worthy of your worship. He is worthy of your praise. He is worthy. And if you got a glimpse of him, you would fall on your face. See, this is the beauty of Christmas, you guys, because Christmas, it, it's all about the king. It's all about Jesus, whether people know it or not. All the music and hymns, it's worshiping the one who is worthy. All the lights on our houses, the candles we light, they're a reminder that light himself entered our darkness. Even the, we, we cut trees down from outside and we bring them in our house. Like, I'm sorry, this is weird. It's strange, but it's a symbol. There's a reason we use the trees that we do because they're evergreen trees and they're a symbol of the eternal life that is offered through that child. The star we put on the hop of the trees, they're all about the star above that manger that led, led those shepherds to where the Savior was, the advent calendars and the countdowns, the reminder of the anticipation of the king who is coming, the plays and the pageants, they tell the story of Jesus, even the candy canes. You, know, you understand that? They're created in such a way that they are to symbolize his purity, the white and the red, his purity and his sacrifice. Our Christmas parties are about us making room in our home as a reminder the one that no one made room for Jesus. 
The stockings on our mantle place filled with gifts are a reminder that the God who gives the greatest gift and the greatest gift was him filling our stockings, him filling our shoes. The wreaths on our door, they're a symbol of the crown of thorns that Jesus had placed on his head. Even those stupid red Starbucks cup point me and remind me of the blood of Christ, okay? So I'm not boycotting Starbucks. I'm gonna get my white chocolate peppermint mocha to the glory of Jesus, amen? Because it all points to Jesus. And what we have is a whole world right now that is accidentally acknowledging his kingship. They are accidentally worshiping him as king, whether they recognize it or not. But here's what I need you to know. A day is coming, and that sky will split open. And Jesus will return in all his glory and all his splendor. And on that day, there will not be an accidental worship and an accidental bow down. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Amen. Kings and rulers and politicians will bow down. Governors and athletes and famous people will bow down. Terrorists will bow down. Everyday common citizens, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And here's my call. May we not wait till that day. May we as a church lift his name high and may we take this moment to glorify the king who is worthy. Jesus, you are so worthy. You are worthy of all the glory and the honor and the praise. You are worthy of all the songs. You are worthy of all the gifts. You are worthy of the plays and the pageants and the lights and the candles and the stars. You are worthy of it all. And Lord, as we celebrate your birth this season, would you just draw us in and remind us of you? Remind us that you came near because you wanted relationship with us. But Lord, may we not take that lightly, but may we get a glimpse of your power and your glory and your might. And so may we surrender all that we are to your kingship, for your praise and your honor. And all God's people said,